0: Welcome back to Grumpy Strategist Podcast. I'm Michael Shoebridge and I'm here talking with SAA's Marcus Hellyer. Marcus, great to see you.
1: Thank you, Michael. Great to be here for episode three. Yes. And look, thanks to people that have been listening and
0: sending us comments. Uh, we'll be very open to questions and ideas for future podcasts. So get in touch with us on the Strategic Analysis Australia website.
1: So yes, we've gotten some great feedback. So thank you to everybody out there who's listening. It's not just my mum. So thank you. And yes, yeah, send suggestions for, for future podcasts. My mum has promised to listen, but I don't think she has yet. So today, Marcus,
0: we've got some really interesting topics. I want to talk about some of the analysis you've done about Australian industry, not just defence industry and its contribution that it can and should make to our defence. Did a very interesting analysis around what's the wrong way to approach uncrewed systems on Triton, the Triton program. That's got some real lessons for how Australian industry contributes. But this all gets much more real when you look at a war that's happening right now. So I thought we could start with the Ukrainian military's attack on the Russian port of Sevastopol and just what what seems to have happened and what insights. Because to me The Russian Navy has suffered some catastrophic loss there, but it hasn't been from a
1: Ukrainian Navy. Mm. Well, yes, exactly. The attack there, well, the war in Ukraine, of course, highlights that these aren't just theoretical esoteric debates. These things we're talking about here have very real-world implications, and so we should take them very seriously. So, yes, in the last couple of days, the Ukrainians launched a strike on the port of Sevastopol. Again, details aren't clear, but some of the reports seem to indicate it was a combination of sea drones, which didn't get through but combined with long-range strike aircraft launching European long-range strike missiles that essentially destroyed two Russian vessels in a dry dock, including a kilo-class submarine. Mm.
0: So what it looks to me like is the Ukrainians have done a classic cost-imposition strategy. They've lost some cheap uncrewed surface vessels and they've fired some cruise missiles. But they may even have destroyed a Russian Kilo class submarine and a large complex landing ship. So that's not a bad return, even if you're just an accountant.
1: Well, it's a very good return. One uh, article I was reading referred to the Ukrainian Navy as a navy without any ships. And so even though they don't have any ships, they are imposing huge cost on the, the Russians, in particular the Russian Navy, and they are denying the Russians the use of the Black Sea. That's very relevant to us because going back to the defense strategic review that we talked about in episode one, the strategy there is a denial strategy. We're not seeking to dominate our approaches, but essentially deny them to a potential adversary and the ukrainians are showing us in the real world how to carry out a denial strategy even when you can't match your adversary in conventional capabilities such as ships and submarines so i think there's a lot there for us to look at you can conduct that denial strategy with a whole range of assets that are not traditional ships and submarines
0: Yes, was back to the sinking of the Moskva, done probably with a combination of drones and missiles. And this time, it's a, it's a slightly more complicated combination of you know, missiles fired by aircraft uh, with surface drones involved. But before then, a sustained Ukrainian effort to destroy and degrade Russian air defence around the port. So it really is a very sophisticated approach, but using some of the low cost things.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a kind of combined arms strategy. So, you know, we heard a lot about combined arms when the army was pushing to get uh, Land 400, the infantry fighting vehicle, saying combined arms was essential. But here we're seeing a different kind of combined arms strategy at work. Now, the thing I sort of, when I look at what the Ukrainians are doing, I think it's very relevant to us because, you know, last week we spoke about our shipbuilding strategy, which is not going very well. And I, I don't want to say we will also be a navy without, any ships or submarines but even the most optimistic future says it's going to be a long time before we get any significant boost to our own naval capabilities so we need to be looking at all of the other ways we can develop our capability quickly, and I think that means thinking outside the box at ways you can sink ships, ways that you can defeat submarines, whether it's sinking them or simply making them ineffective. We need to be pursuing lots of different approaches. So plan A may still be, you know, ships and nuclear submarines, that's fine, but we need to be pursuing all of these plan Bs, not as things sitting on the shelf, but as actual things we are putting into service.
0: Yes, yes. So no matter how many ships the future Royal Australian Navy has, it's not going to be enough to cover the huge expanse of ocean around Australia, even that bit that the strategic review says is so important from mm-hmm. the Malaccas around the South Pacific. So some of this Ukrainian approach, aircraft, um, missiles, drones, would complement whatever fleet the Navy has. And then talking about these the, the Ukrainian use of drones makes me think about the Triton. You know, it is an unmanned aerial system that the Australian Defence Organisation actually has, which means it's a pretty lonely beast. But Australia's got very few of them, and they're very, very sophisticated, complicated and expensive, not just to buy, about $200 million each, but to operate. So expensive, it looks like the US is getting out of the business itself.
1: Yes. Well, I published on the SAA website earlier this week, a piece on Triton. So the US Navy's very, very large, high altitude, long endurance surveillance drone. And that program has been going for a very, very long time. It's over two decades, essentially. It's, it continued on from the earlier Global Hawk program. And we, Australia, we've been sort of in and out of that program now for well over 25 years. We finally have ordered aircraft. They're being built. We have three under construction. We've always said we wanted around six or seven. 25 years later, the US Navy has said, we're actually ending the program. We were going to get 70 aircraft, but we're going to stop at 22. And so that kind of leaves us awkwardly half pregnant. So we've got three aircraft under construction. I assume we're going to get them. Do we still get the full six or seven? Well, you know, do you want to be doubling down on your investment when the U.S. Navy is pulling back? Do we want to own a very large percentage of the global fleet, which puts us on the hook for through-life costs such as, you know, software and hardware upgrades. So leaves us in a very awkward kind of position. But the I think the more fundamental issue is, is this the kind of capability you should be pursuing in the first place? These very large, expensive mega projects that essentially undo all of the benefits of uncrewed systems. You know, so yeah. the main benefit of uncrewed systems is you can leverage the small, the smart and the many. Well, we've actually ended up with very few and they are are very, very expensive. Well, one thing that occurs to me is we just talked
0: about the Sevastopol attack, and that was a cost imposition attack from the Ukrainians. If you're using something as complex as Triton and you lose it, you've had a big cost imposed on you. So to me, there's a real conceptual change needed in the Australian Defence Organisation about... Uncrewed autonomous systems. They should not try to replicate all the features of the current crewed platforms.
1: Well, I think that's exactly the point, Michael. If you're making an uncrewed platform that's just as big, just as complex, tries to integrate as many systems as a traditional crewed aircraft, guess what? It's going to end up being just as expensive and have all of the same kinds of risks. And the other thing uh, when I look at this program is this fundamental asymmetry that we have. So 20 years ago, if an Aussie small to medium enterprise or startup had come into defense and said, I've got this great idea to do wide area surveillance, but it's going to take 20 years to get there and it'll cost billions of dollars before you actually get any real capability. And by the way, it may not actually work at all. They would have been laughed out of court. And yet that's exactly the journey we've embarked upon with Triton. And so there's this double standard there where we will accept any amount of risk if it's a US Department of Defence program, but we won't accept any risk at all with a, by going with Australian industry.
0: Well, and even
1: if the
0: cost of an Australian industry solution for a particular problem might be $5 million, $20 million, we've committed to $2.777 billion on the Triton
1: program. And, and much of the sort of actual capability that Triton was to offer can now actually be done by commercial solutions that are available to anybody for a fraction of the price. Well, that makes me think about one other lesson,
0: which is if, if you're right that uncrewed systems should not try to have all the attributes of the exquisite complex crude systems, people think of them as replacing they're not actually replacing them they're doing something different in a different way maybe what australian industry has to offer can actually contribute a whole lot more to our defence and i know you've done recent analysis about this argument that australia's economic complexity is you know like eswatini so crappy that we can't make anything and that's played into that national narrative about since the death of the car industry, it just shows we should just focus on digging stuff up and growing food. Mm. Um, Haven't we got more industrial capacity than that line would tell us?
1: Paul, yes. I published another piece recently that wanted to push back on that narrative, that you know, Australian industry, we've lost our manufacturing capability. We can't do anything complicated. We can only dig stuff up and export it or grow stuff and export it. And it started with one of my pet peeves, which is the Harvard Atlas of Economic Complexity. So, And of course, you go, well, Harvard is in the name it's a complexity. It, it must be authoritative. I'm impressed. And, mm. and it's an atlas, so it mm-hmm. sounds kind of global. That's it cool. does sound very impressive. But if you actually lift the, the hood and look at the algorithm running it, To me, it's not quite so impressive because it spits out this ranking for every country in the world and Australia is ranked 93rd. So we're between Uganda and Pakistan and 30 spots behind Eswatini, as you say, the country formerly known as Swaziland, which sounds a little odd. So when you actually look at the algorithm, it really just looks at exports, which are an output. It doesn't look at the inputs that go into generating those outputs. Right, right. So if
0: you dig coal up and you sell it, it doesn't matter whether you dig it up with some spades and a whole lot of cheap hired help or whether you use the most exquisite mining technology on the planet. And it turns out Australian mining companies, when they're working in places like the Pilbara, do use some of the most impressive technology on the planet. And Australian companies make and supply a lot of that. I think that's the core of your
1: argument. That is indeed the core of the argument because the Atlas ranks particular exports according to how many countries can do it. And it assumes the more countries that can do it, the less complex it must be and the easier it must be. And coal, wool, iron ore rank very low. But that completely glosses over, as you say, the amount of technology needed to do it in a world-leading way the way we do it. So if you look at our mining industry, very high degrees of autonomy and autonomous systems there. If you look at our agriculture sector, Australian farmers are all over using UAVs for and a whole fact, number of I, I find purposes. That,
0: I find that impressive and depressing at the same time. You know, we talk about recruitment and retention problems with our military. Well, if you want to use drones, get your hands on drone technology, you'd be better going into farming in Australia than the military at the moment. Well, and that, that kind of needs to change.
1: Yes. I mean, is it the case that the average Australian farmer is more drone literate? than the Australian Defence Force. I I don't know, but what I do know is that a lot of the things that defence forces globally need and are actively looking for are things that Australian industry can already do because they're supplying them to the agriculture sector, to the mining sector. And so if we open the aperture and don't automatically assume we need to go to the US Department of Defence or a global prime, there are lots of things that Australian industry can do already. And we're seeing that again, to go back to the Ukraine, there's been a lot of stories recently in the media about smart Australian companies supplying world leading capabilities into Ukraine right now.
0: Mm, Like the alleged use of Australian cardboard drones to conduct attacks inside Russia, whether that's true or not. No one's laughing about the idea of cardboard drones anymore, because it can bring you a very, they can bring you some very ugly surprises.
1: Yeah, so it's not just those traditional capabilities like the Bushmaster protected mobility vehicle that got a lot of publicity when we exported them, but drone technologies and counter drone technology. And so Australian uh, defence industry is actually ahead of the curve here in many areas, but also companies that have not traditionally been in the defence sector have shown that they can transition into the defence sector. and the classic case there is Civmec. So a large uh, construction company that was in the oil and gas and resource sector building Big mines platforms, you know, and yeah. and various offshore platforms were able to move into the shipbuilding sector and they're building the Arafura-class offshore patrol vessels. So there is a lot of capability in uh, Australian industry. Ooh. you know. So don't believe the hype about lack of Uh, capability in Australian industry.
0: Yes. One thing, though, that stops some of these good things happening, stops SMEs working in the mining sector, bringing dual-use technology across to defence, is the barriers to entry into doing business with defence. And those barriers seem to me to be getting higher, not lower. And AUKUS can make those barriers higher, as the obligations to protect technology transferred from our American friends get placed on the Australian Defence Organisation, the already high barriers, and you've got to get special facilities that meet security requirements, you've got to get cleared people, you've got to get your information systems accredited, Uh, and then you've got to work with a big prime. All of that, if you just looked at the economics of it, they're all barriers to entry that mean if I'm doing business with the mining or ag sector... It's just too hard to, to bring my capability to, to defence. So if the government's big fluffy idea of national defence, you know, defence is everybody's business, is to really mean anything, those barriers to entry into the defence sector
1: need to be lowered. I agree entirely, Michael. And, you know, one of the other things we're seeing from Ukraine is how Ukraine is mobilising the entire nation and it's mobilising its entire industrial base. We need to be doing a similar th- thing, like drawing on all of our industrial resources to support the defence of Australia. So that means finding ways to get small to medium enterprises into the defence market. As you say, there's a lot of risk at the moment in doing that. Defence in some ways is a very fickle customer. So, you know, you don't, if you're an Aussie SME, you don't want to bet the farm on defence contracts.
0: Mm. Well, one thing I've heard continually from defence officials at various events I've been to over the last uh, year or so is, look, if you want to do business with us, it's very exciting, there's quite a bit of money, but you have to be very patient and very long term, and you really need to work through the big primes. And if you're an Australian smaller, even medium business, that is just, they're all red red lights saying, do not enter here. So amongst the changes needs to be a change to this multi-layered set of obstacles between what Australian business can do really well, and they demonstrate in these other sectors, and how defence engages. And really, We see it with things like the Royal Commission into Veteran Suicides. That takes political leadership. The magic doesn't happen bottom up from the bureaucracy. I think there's a whole interesting set of things to say about defence acquisition. industry policy, but it's probably for another podcast.
1: Well, I think we are expecting some uh, new policy out of the department and out of the government in in the realm of defence industry. So this, I think, will be a recurring topic in our podcasts for the rest of the year. Yeah, well, thank you, Marcus.
0: Uh, Connecting Sevastopol, the big Triton UAV program and what the mining industry and ag sector in Australia are capable of, I think that's worth doing. Thanks, Marcus.
1: Thank you, Michael.